Welcome to the podcast, How Not to Think. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin uh, today with this episode uh, where I am thrilled to have with me one of the leaders of the Lifestyle as Medicine movement, Dr. David Katz. It's always fascinating to and interesting talking to him. And the How Not to Think podcast really looks at uh, the problems with thinking, as outlined in my book, um, I Think Therefore I'm Wrong, which include false assumptions, binary thinking, uh, emotional thinking, not digging down to what to the, all the facts that we know. And uh, today we're going to be talking with David about nutrition, which uh, probably is one of those areas that has been most affected by previous misguided, for want of a better expression, thinking. So welcome, David. Thank you for taking time after your workout. That's, that's great to see you <laughs> work out. That's, that's great. Yeah, you get me in my glistening state, Howard. Sorry about that. Uh, pleasure to be with you. I, the book is fantastic, by the way. Um, I think the title is brilliant. Um, it's a really important topic. And, and just quickly to put out there, you know, I don't know if people know, if you haven't done a podcast, you, you don't know how these things work, right? It all seems very formal and staged, but you and I are friends. So inevitably what happens is you, you get the connection established and you start having the conversation and you just take off, right? And then you have to say, whoa, 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 what, this is what we're supposed to be doing on the podcast. Let's stop talking and right. you know, press record. So, so we've already been having a good conversation this morning. It's, it's nice to share it now. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look back at the history and certainly the relatively recent history of nutrition, nutrition research, the understanding of food, you certainly can see uh, periods and times when false assumptions, binary thinking, all of those things came in to kind of take us a little bit off course uh, in terms of how we understand nutrition and more importantly, how that's presented to the average person. It's a massive problem. Uh, and, and it's hard to know exactly where best to start, um, maybe with the fact that diet is the single leading predictor variable of all-cause mortality and total chronic disease risk in the United States today. So if you're worried about getting sick or dying, the thing most likely to cause either of those when you don't want them to happen and we're eventually going to die, but we don't want to die too soon, you know, is eating badly. Number one, it's incredible. And, and you don't need to take my word for it. This was an op-ed in the New York Times, August 26th, by Darius Mozafarian, who is dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts University, and Dan Glickman, who is former secretary of agriculture of the United States. And the title of their op-ed was, Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. Pretty blunt and absolutely true. And then they right. cite the relevant evidence and then they go on to enumerate their potential remedies and we can get into that. So everybody really needs to care about this. I think, you know, first of all, again, I love your book. I, I think therefore I'm wrong is, is so right. <laughs> and people so need this reality check and it applies to many important topics, but nutrition arguably is right at the top of the list because almost everybody eats almost every day and what we eat has a massive impact on our health. And again, number one predictor variable for all-cause mortality. It's hard for anything to be much more important than that. And then we quickly get into, Howard, all the reasons why everything we think is wrong. And you know, some of them are hiding in plain sight. Uh, some of them have to do with massive conflicts and, and lobbying and hidden agendas. 
So some is exposed, some is less exposed. I, you know, I mostly today want to talk about and celebrate your book and, and thinking about thinking. But my most recent book, The Truth About Food, is a 750-page brain dump. It's everything I know, and more importantly, I think how I know it and why I can differentiate what's true from what's not true. So it's very much aligned with this. And the fact that you know, some of what we need to know and how we need to think is pretty plain, and some of it is quite veiled, and we have to deal with both. Let me, let me start with this. Science has the power of a freight train, no question. Most powerful tool we've ever devised to, to probe the realms of you know, the, the, the distant, the tiny, the gigantic, everything we can't understand. We can, we can perceive what we can't otherwise see or hear or reach because of science. Has the power of a freight train, but sense must lay the tracks. And if you don't lay tracks and you run a train, you get a train wreck. And I, you know, honestly, I think that's kind of where we are with nutrition now. So it's not just that we have misunderstandings for want of science. We have misunderstandings because of misapplications of science. So, you know, literally, as, as your book suggests, I think, therefore, I'm wrong. So almost the harder we're thinking, the more we get it wrong. Last comment, and then, you know, we can kind of shift and get into any of these details. But consider this. I, I often address this in, in my ranting on the topic. Um, before we invented science, we knew what to eat, right? I mean, every wild species on the planet knows what to eat and they don't run randomized trials. And for that matter, you know, when, when we catch some of those guys and put them in the zoological park and we need to take care of them, to the best of my knowledge, the zookeepers don't run randomized trials either. Hey, let's, let's try the lions on corn and the koalas on wildebeest. And, you know, they don't do that. They say the lions are eating meat. Let's give them meat. The koalas are eating eucalyptus leaves and seem to be doing fine. Let's give them eucalyptus leaves. So, you know, the idea that adaptation, you know, kind of what works for a species is the place to start, is so obvious that it dominates our relationships with every other species on the planet except ourselves. Somehow we think we are so unique, we homo sapiens are so special that, you know, we can't know what to eat until we run a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial. Uh, and that's just silly. You know, we knew what to eat long before anybody invented the randomized trial or microscope. So everything we are now able to learn with science should be appended to what sense and common experience and pattern recognition and you know, countless generations of humans surviving had already told us that works for every other species. That should be bedrock. And then we should only get better from there. Somehow we've actually used science, weaponized science and blown up the bedrock. And that's flat out crazy. Yep, yep. I, <laughs> a good summary of it. Though I do think I read somewhere that um, elephants once conducted a randomized trial in what they should eat, but they've forgotten what it was. So. <laughs> I, I, you know, you look into the eyes of an elephant, you see a great deal of wisdom there. It wouldn't surprise me if they had done that, but I, I think they'd remember if they had run a randomized yeah, trial. Yeah, actually, they're probably fooling us. They just don't want us to do yeah. it. But yeah. And and the implications of what you've just said to the everyday, every, every one of us on the planet, and particularly in Western society, has been huge. Well, it's massive. Said. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, at the individual level, there is massive confusion about what, what really is the right dietary guidance. Who do I even listen to? By the way, on that topic, just to get this out there, 
Um, don't worry about listening to any one person and don't worry about listening to me as the authority on nutrition. It's too important to rely on any one person. And for that very reason, uh, years ago, I created a nonprofit, as you know, Howard, the True Health Initiative, a global coalition of leading experts on science, public health, nutrition, lifestyle as medicine, and, and the importance of this council of 500 world leading experts from 45 countries is we don't tend to agree with one another. They range from vegan to paleo, everything in between. But what we present at the True Health Initiative is the common ground, which is so much bigger and so much more important than the disagreement. So let me encourage everybody to visit truehealthinitiative.org and see what the science sense and global consensus all say. And, and so you're not relying on any one expert. But yeah, so there's this massive pseudo confusion. So people are forestalled in their efforts to take good care of themselves and their families. It serves the interests of big food, which can keep selling us basically lipstick on a pig. You know, I mean, essentially they can develop a new variety of junk food, tell us that it's fortified with whatever the nutrient darling du jour happens to be in big letters on the front, and we'll eat it up. Um, it serves the interests of media because, you know, you have to tune in tomorrow and hear the new story about diet because everything you thought you knew up until yesterday was wrong. It serves the interests of what I consider kind of rogue scientists who want to be renegade geniuses. You know, they, they much prefer the notoriety of being the one person who's willing to reveal the truth than to conveying time-honored, reliable, practical, practicable, actionable intel. I mean, I, I'd, I'd much rather be boring and convey actionable information than be fascinating and provocative. I mean, if I can be both terrific, but, you know, I think a lot of people are willing to sacrifice the trustworthiness and the reliability for being fascinating, provocative, and on the bestseller list. And honestly, the best way in nutrition to get on the bestseller list is to tell everybody that everything they thought they knew up until yesterday was wrong, that you're the one person on the planet who knows the truth and is willing to tell them. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's this massive cast of characters and there's massive profit in pseudo confusion about diet um, for everybody but you and your family. Where getting it wrong is potentially calamitous. You know, I mean, in the United States, it's a rite of passage at midlife to have a scar across your chest where they, you know, they opened you up to clean out your coronaries and nobody needs to get coronary disease. Nobody needs to get it. Nobody needs to get type 2 diabetes. We, we've known how to prevent these almost all the time for literal decades. Diet's a huge part of that formula. We have been squandering the opportunity to add years to lives, life to years, and by the way, to help save the planet too now um, because of this pseudo confusion. So thinking right and getting past all of this is absolutely critical. And, and one of the problems we have is, particularly in the complex world, the brain is looking for simplicity. Brain is looking for simplicity, so we divide things in a binary way. Moreover, when we contrast two things that are actually very similar, we overvalue the contrast rather than the similarity. Beautifully stated. I, I'm at, you know, as we speak, I'm working on this week's column, and I'm going to talk about you know good food, bad food, neutral neutral food compared to what. And it's exactly right. So the, the analogy I'm using is exercise. So, you know, imagine, so we get studies that tell us eggs are good, eggs are bad. And, you know, everybody says, oh, we're hopelessly confused. We don't know who to believe. You can't trust these guys. Forget it. I'll eat whatever the heck I want. Well, imagine if you got, you know, headlines telling you walking is good, walking is bad, walking is neutral. You know, would you do the same thing and say you can't trust exercise scientists? 
Well, compared to what? So if you did it, you took, let's say, highly fit runners and randomly assign them to keep running or to stop running and walk 20 minutes a day instead of running five miles a day. Well, then the group that did the walking, you know, over three months, their fitness level would decline because they're doing much less exercise than they were doing before. But the headline could be newsflash, walking is bad for your fitness, right? Well, compared to running five miles a day, uh, yeah, but that wouldn't be in the headline. So we do that with nutrition. So, you know, eggs are good for you now. Yeah, compared to eating donuts for breakfast, right, right. So it completely drops out. It's this binary comparison. And we fail to ask the compared to what question. Why don't we do it with exercise? So we could have a study that says walking doesn't have any fitness benefit. Actually, walking is bad for your fitness, right? Compared to running. Right. We could also have the, you know, the next study. No, walking is excellent for your fitness compared to sitting. Right. And then we could have walking is neutral for fitness compared to a comparable amount of biking. You know, at a, you know, slow biking, slow walking, same fitness level, walking is neutral. So good, bad, ugly, neutral. You could produce any result you want. One of the things people don't understand about randomized trials, it's a powerful method. But it only answers the question you ask. And if you ask a senseless question, science can't redeem that. A good way to think about the power of science, you know, I already used the train needing the tracks, but power tool. So, you know, chainsaw. You've got a down tree blocking your driveway, a chainsaw is your friend. If you mishandle it and dismember yourself, it's not your friend, right? Science is the same. It can be mishandled. So, yes, I think the binary comparison, crucial. You need, compared to what? You know, what are we comparing here? Is it a relevant comparison? If you tell me walking is neutral for health compared to biking a comparable amount, what have you really told me? That there are two ways to be fitter than doing nothing. You know, you really have to contextualize. Right. And science is often bad at that. Scientists are often bad at that. But the media, they, they live on making sure that the public never gets past the hyperbole. So that, you know, the headline wants you to misinterpret the study. The headline wants you to believe this week walking is good. They want you to believe next week that walking is bad. The week after that, walking is neutral and round and round we go. And that's because, and I'm sure you are familiar with this too, Howard, in the media world, the prevailing mantra is, and you actually see this up on the wall in control rooms. I mean, I've done a lot of TV. I've seen this plaque, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. And the idea is just keep people disequilibrated, rocking back and forth, forever confused, because you know, if they ever know what's what, they'll stop watching us. If they're always confused, they're going to have to come back to us tomorrow so we can tell them what's what again. Right. And the problem with that is, as I mentioned in the book, that trains people to expect that and think like that, to think, look for the sensational, look for the definitive, look for things taken completely out of context. And that actually influences the way they think. Yeah. It's the way influence. If you grew up in a society where you're watching all this stuff from media and TV and commercials, all this is emotional manipulation. Right. And that's what you, that's what you grow up with. That's what you think communication is. That's what you should be doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the other thing that's interesting, um, we are social creatures. Um, Another great book, The Social Conquest of Earth by E.O. Wilson, a Harvard biologist, uh, entomologist. So he studied social insects, but he took all that knowledge about how social creatures thrive and applied it to the most successful of all social creatures so far. Uh, almost sapiens. I, I, I don't know that our tenure is going to be very long, actually, at the rate we're going, but, you know, at the moment. And, and because we're social creatures, one of the things we're very good at early in life is conforming. 
So, you know, whatever's going on around us, we, we imbibe that, we adopt that, and then we project that. So I think, I think what you're saying is powerfully true. If, if you're getting images all around you about the way you're supposed to think in society, um, it conditions us. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not prone to resist it because as social creatures, fitting in is a good thing. You don't want to be the odd member of your tribe that everybody rolls their eyes at. You want to fit in and benefit from the protection of the tribe. And so um, young children in particular are highly impressionable, but it never completely goes away. And I think we always strive to fit in. And when the prevailing thinking is bad thinking, uh, we become good at thinking badly. And by the way, Howard, just, just so we don't forget to say this, because you know, people may be frustrated at this point. We keep talking about diet and what's true and what's not true. And l- let's just get out there what is true. Just, you know, Absolutely. In case you have to take off, folks, and you know, what's the punchline? So, you know, I, I, I've spent my whole career, 30 years, really focused on this, written textbooks on it and review papers on it. And it's, it, it's pretty damn simple. If your diet is mostly made up of, whole minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. And if you mostly drink plain water when you're thirsty, I mean, if all that is mostly what you do, truly, mm-hmm. you can't go too far wrong. It, it really is that simple. We knew that before we invented science. We've only reaffirmed it with every kind of science we have. And then there's this massive veil of pseudo confusion and bad thinking we're talking about, but that's it. And then, you know, that is amenable to every variant on the theme, right? So you add fish and you're pescatarian, you leave out the fish and maybe you're vegan, you add dairy and you're vegetarian, you add a little bit of meat and some red wine and you're Mediterranean, you know, you cut back on the, the carbs and, and raise the protein content and you're low carb, you cut down, you, you, you spare yourself the extra virgin olive oil and you're low fat, I mean, none of that matters. You know, is a good diet high in fat or low in fat? Yes, who cares? You know, Mediterranean diet's high in fat, some traditional Asian diets that are just as good or low in fat. You know, this comes back to your point, Howard. We, we dichotomize. We make everything binary. Is it is you know good high fat, low fat? Well, what if you can have a good or bad diet either way? Well, then the, the question the question is bad. There are no good answers to bad questions. And and I think what prevails in the world of nutrition today is bad questions. And then we generate the answers, and then they dominate news cycles, and everybody just gets ever more confused. Mostly eat. Seriously, honestly, truly, <laughs> minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, or you know, any of those that you're okay with, you're allergic to nuts, don't eat nuts. If you can't eat peanuts, don't eat peanuts. I'm not telling you to eat peanuts despite your allergy, you know, but within that space and then add or don't add any of the other stuff. Honestly, you can't go too far wrong. That's the formula. You heard it here first. Yeah, it's simple, but it's simple. Hey, it's not good for ratings and media coverage is well, yeah, well, not at all you, you know how i worked for good morning america years ago i was on air for two and a half years a couple times a week uh honestly you know i, I one of the reasons i'm not still there is this i mean i you know i'm going to come on week after week after week and say the same thing you only do that so many times before they say you know you're boring we need somebody who's willing to tell somebody that the best diet is different every week so right. we're done with you we'll, we'll right. bring on that person now Right, right. Or, or to take what you've said, but add a wrinkle to it. Like, yes, yeah. And, and so... Great, but you've got to eat them green. <laughs> well, what, or standing on one leg in the light yeah. of a full moon, or, right, you know, every third Wednesday, you can only eat kumquats. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Right, exactly. So, you know, and, and listen, you know, I believe in edutainment. You know, I really do. I mean, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're you know, dry as toast and boring... 
it doesn't matter how good your message is, nobody wants to hear it. So, you know, I think being lively and engaging and entertaining, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I did that uh, on television and I certainly try to do that from the podium and in my writing. And I think a sense of humor is great. Um, but the truth is the truth. And when you have to give up the truth in order to be engaging, that's a bridge too far. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it is important, uh, as you say, to be engaging and entertaining and humorous, but not to divert, you know, change the presentation, but not the content. Exactly. I mean, the truth is the truth. So the, 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 the truth about nutrition hides in plain sight. Again, um, I wrote this 750 page book, The Truth About Food, Why Pandas Eat Bamboo and People Get Bamboozled. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I, I joke in the book that this 750 page, 200,000 word book could have been seven words and none of them would have been mine. They would have been Michael Pollan's Eat Food, Not Too Much, Mostly Plants, right? Good night, folks. Um, and the reason the book is so long is, you know, why are we so confused if that's true, right? So sorting out the lies <laughs> is the bulk of the book. Yes. The, truth is, the truth is simple, and it, it really does hide in plain sight. One other thing, by the way, because, you know, some people listening have said, yeah, I knew that, and I agree, and that makes sense, and, but I still struggle. Let's be clear that simple doesn't mean easy, right? I mean, lifting a big rock out of a deep hole is simple, but it's hard. <laughs> and right, so, right. you know, some stuff is is simple, it's not complicated, that doesn't mean it's easy. And in our culture, which runs on Duncan and peddles multicolored marshmallows as part of a child's complete breakfast, eating well is not easy because all the cues around you and, and all the opportunities around you encourage you to eat badly all the time. So you're kind of swimming against the currents of your culture. Honestly, I don't think that's fair. I think we need a cultural revolution related to food. But until that happens, simple doesn't mean easy. No, absolutely, absolutely. And that's a really critical point uh, because it's not easy. Again, a lot of people will default to the simple position because it's just too demanding. Um, and, you know, even with the best intentions, there goes your, there goes your lifespan as well as your diet. And, 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 you know, one of the things that I think has dominated and influenced that nutrition a lot, particularly publicly, is, is so much of it's around the issue of weight and weight loss and everything is presented as calories. You know, calories may be one of the least important aspects of, of food in some ways, right? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I have colleagues who would argue it's the most important thing. So I uh, just it yeah. was on a phone call this week with Kevin Hall, whose name people may know is a researcher at the NIH famous for developing dynamic models of energy balance. The idea that when you lose weight, your calorie requirements change, right? So the idea that there's a certain number of calories that will maintain your weight, a certain number of calories that will increase your weight, a certain number that will decrease your weight. Well, that's all true, but as your weight changes, your calorie requirements change. Now that shouldn't surprise people, you know, and, and it, it frustrates people because they, they go on a diet, they lose weight, and then they hit a plateau. And everybody gets pissed because, you know, the thing, I, I haven't fallen off the wagon. I'm still being good. I'm not still losing weight. It's just not fair. The gods are unkind. And, you know, the reality is that a lean horse and a lean mouse consume very different amounts of calories every day. Mm -hmm. And that's because the horse is big. I mean, it's just that simple, right? Bigger animals need more calories to stay big. And right. a horse may be perfectly lean. And, you know, you could even have a lean horse if you like in a fat mouse. It doesn't matter. Right. A horse needs right. more calories because the horse is bigger. Same is true of us. So when we're bigger, 
we need more calories to stay that size. As we shrink, we need fewer calories to stay that smaller size. It's that simple. Anyway, so, so uh, Dr. Hall has done work on that. He's also the one who did the recent randomized trial of ultra-processed food. So the same kinds of foods, same calories presented, but ultra-processed versus less processed preparation. And ultra-processed food led people to overconsume about 500 calories a day and to gain weight. So, you know, I think Dr. Hall would argue that calories are really important. Marion Nessel, whose name people would know in this space, would argue they're very important. My feeling is they're important because, you know, frankly, the total energy we consume determines whether or not we're in energy balance. It really is that simple. But they can also be a distraction because although calories do count, counting calories is tedious and generally not helpful. And the reason that it's not helpful is the number of calories it takes to feel full varies massively with the quality of what you eat. And it doesn't, doesn't just vary because wholesome foods fill us up on, on fewer calories and that's happenstance. It varies because processed foods take more calories to fill us up and that's by design. And I think the, I've, I've seen this story told a number of times going back about 15 years, but the version that I recommend to everybody because it's really good and it's readily available is a New York Times Magazine cover story by Pulitzer Prize winner Michael Moss entitled The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. So if you just go to your Google search box and put Moss Addictive, you'll pull it right up. Um, he's also the author of a great book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, and another book, Hooked, and it's all about the machinations of big food. But in The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food, which is excerpted from Salt, Sugar, Fat, Michael tells the story of how all the big food companies hire teams of PhDs, give them functional MRI machines and marching orders to play around with food formulations, see what it does to the hypothalamus, the appetite center on the MRI, and keep going until they light up the hypothalamus like a Christmas tree. In other words, design food, people can't stop eating until their arm is exhausted from lifting it to their mouths. Right. And, and so, so that's the issue with calories. Yes, they really are important, actually, um, fundamentally relevant but also a potentially dangerous distraction because if you fixate on counting them rather than the quality of what you eat, you're probably going to lose twice. Yep. And I think that's right. And Michael Moss's work is really excellent and eye-opening in some ways, although when you read it, although you might be shocked, you'd also say, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> that's exactly. And, and you know, another example, right, of I think therefore I am wrong. So it's sort of shocking. And yet on the other hand, it's well, duh, of course, Right. You know, the business right. of business is business that, you know, if they can do something to make me right. buy and eat more of their product, they're probably going to do that. Right. Um, now, you know, the other thing I, I think, and, and here's another binary issue in our society, we kind of have this split where, you know, we've got, first of all, we've got liberal and conservative, we've got right and left, we've got Democrat and Republican, we've got all this sort of partisan, let's go to the mm -hmm. polls and throw insults at one another. I don't mean the, the voting polls. I mean, you know, the, the, the polar extremes, right? And, and, you know, hurl mud at one another. And, you know, th this, this tendency to gravitate to opposing positions makes it really tough to, to come together and find common ground about policy. And so I would argue, and I would argue <clears throat> not just because I'm a public health physician, but because I'm a father, I've raised five children, that a food supply that is willfully engineered to maximize the calories it takes to feel full in a society with epidemic childhood obesity and epidemic type two diabetes in kids is utterly unconscionable. And if anything calls for regulation, this is it. 
in our society, because we're so binary in our thinking, you kind of have, you know, all regulation is good. So big brother should tell me what I'm allowed to have for breakfast or right. no regulation at all. Right. Total laissez-faire, let anybody do what they want. And, you know, if the bakers want to put arsenic in the bread to make it crustier, you know, they should be allowed to do that. And it's my problem to figure out that I'm eating arsenic. I mean, you know, on and on it goes, right? So we kind of have these extremes where we, we fail to acknowledge that, you know, the alternative to the nanny state isn't being complete ninnies where we just assume that, you know, business is going to take care of us rather than shareholders. It's a middle path that says, you know, let's let business do what it does well and give them all the latitude they, they need to thrive and survive in a capitalist system. But where we need regulation to level the playing field, like, for example, protecting the well-being of children, no, I do not think we should let corporate profit grow at the expense of the health of children. We have epidemic type two diabetes in kids. And, and folks, hear me, I, I tend to get worked up, Howard, forgive me. But you know, when I went to medical school, I learned about two kinds of diabetes and they were called juvenile onset and adult onset. Make no mistake, in my clinical career, I have watched adult onset diabetes become epidemic in kids. And then we changed the name to type two so everybody would be okay with it. It's not okay. So I invite you to join me in outrage. You ought to be outraged. And yeah, that, that screams for regulation. And again, we don't have to choose between nannies and ninnies. There's a middle path. But if we're too binary, if we think, therefore, we're wrong all the time, we never see the middle path. Right. We're just too busy throwing things at one another from the extremes. Right. And we completely miss the opportunity to make good sense in the middle. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. It applies to absolutely everything. Everything. Uh, everything, which is... A bit concerning, I guess, but not uh, very. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but I totally agree with you. I mean, totally agree with you. I think if I were working with somebody now who was struggling, you know, by eating too much processed food, one of the things that I would say to them, you know, there's their executives of that company, you know, who are deliberately doing this to you. You feel okay with that? That they That's are right. giving you diabetes and all of that. Are you okay with that? If they have if to, you're fat okay with it. Yeah, keep, keep going. Yeah, if they have to fatten yeah. you to fatten their their corporate profits, right. they're fine with it. If yeah. you're fine with it too, okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. People, again, binary thinking, right? So government is good, government is bad. Well, you know, the worry about government is being manipulated by Big Brother. But, you know, the companies are, we know for sure they're manipulating you. It, 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 again, talk about truths hiding in plain sight. And at least government is ostensibly accountable to the electorate, whereas the companies are only accountable to their shareholders. They, they don't really need to care what the rest of us. Um, by the way, a, a great example of all of this, Howard, that everybody's probably stumbled over recently is this, this story about processed meat. Uh, made news all around the world. Oh, yeah. The True Health Initiative was deeply involved in, in setting the record straight. But um, you know, it, chances are you got the memo sometime recently that there are new guidelines and it's okay to keep eating processed meat. And if ever there was a vivid illustration of how to think badly, this was it. And I don't want to tell this whole story, but in brief, this was a group of statisticians, really. Um, so not nutrition experts for the most part and not public health people and not practitioners, but statisticians who cared more about the number crunching than anything else, who, who looked at studies um, where there was more or less intake of red and processed meat. And then they aggregated the data and generated a, um, a statistical result. It's called meta-analysis. And here's what they found across, believe it or not, five different research papers. Here's what they found. Um, 
people who ate more red and processed meat died prematurely more often, uh, got cancer more often, and got heart disease more often. So every outcome they looked at, every bad outcome, bad outcomes happened more when people ate more red and processed meat. And all of that was statistically significant in their own work. It's also statistically significant in all the prior work and when you aggregate more data than they included. And Okay, but then there's how not to think. They scored the strength of that evidence using a particular metric, it's called GRADE, that happens to be very good for placebo-controlled trials, not so good for nutritional epidemiology where there is no such thing as a placebo diet. It's a very different kind of work, right? You can't randomly assign someone to a diet for the rest of their lives. Nobody wants to play that game. There is no such thing as a placebo diet, and you can't blind people to what they're eating every day for the rest of their lives, right? So it's just a different space than one year, this pill, placebo, right? So GRADE is perfectly designed for placebo-controlled trials in the pharmaceutical space. It's not the right measure. You know, it's like trying to peel a banana with a chainsaw. Uh, Not the right tool for the job. You're going to have mashed banana all over your kitchen. So according to this one metric, the strength of their own evidence was weak. Because the strength of the evidence that processed meat is harmful was weak according to this one measure according to them, they therefore issued guidelines saying keep eating it. Now, everything about this is wrong. Um, First of all, they didn't include all the relevant evidence. Secondly, they used the wrong scoring system. Third, they misinterpreted their own result if we care at all about little things like the Hippocratic Oath, right? So it looks like going this way is harmful, but we're not sure it's harmful, so go that way. We don't do that in medicine. In medicine, we honor the precautionary principle. We honor primum non notre, first do no harm. It looks like going that way is harmful. We're not totally sure, but to be on the safe side, we definitely encourage you to go this way until we know for sure that this is safe because it looks like it's probably not. That's the ethical thing to do. So, so everything about this was, was bad thinking. And then I think the most important part and the part that's really most relevant to your work is that there's, there is this weaponization of science, the tyranny of the RCT. It's, it's like these statisticians are telling you, we own, we control, and we dictate the only way you can ever hope to know what's true. And until we sign off, you don't know what you know. But ask yourself, you know, all the parents listening in here, ask yourself, are you pretty confident that your kids should not run with scissors? And if you're pretty damn confident your kids should not run, I was always confident my kids should not run with scissors, right? Right. Always made good sense to me. Mm -hmm. But ask yourself, when's the last time you read a randomized controlled trial on that topic or a meta-analysis? Are you pretty confident you shouldn't stick your hand in a fire? You're likely to get burned. What's the last RCT you read on that topic? You've ever gone camping. How confident are you that water is a better choice to put out your campfire than gasoline? You know, there's so much we know that is so important and we know it so confidently that has nothing to do with randomized controlled trials. And I think one of the ways we think wrong is being talked into the notion that there's just one way to know what's right. That's right. And it's not true. Yeah. I mean, on the same basis really you keep smoking you know i mean you know it's you know we think it's bad for you but we can't say absolutely 100 percent that you're going to be affected by it 
no randomized trials. No randomized, uh, no randomized trials of heroin use. No random trials. And, and, you know, we could make the same. Well, people like using cocaine and it looks harmful, but we have no randomized trials and very few meta-analyses. And so, you know, given the weak evidence about the harms of cocaine, yeah, we, we, we advise you to keep using it at current levels and heroin the same. And, yeah. Right. Uh, you know, so it, it, it's, it's madness. And then you have to wonder why. Uh, what's the agenda here? Is it just notoriety? Why do the journals publish this? Is it just to have the highest impact factor? That part, I wish I knew. I'm not quite sure how to think of that. It's very troubling. But what is the motivation? But you don't need me or anybody else to tell you that there's just one way for you to know what you know, because you know what you know. And, and a lot of what we know is simply the consistency of patterns. I mean, I, I, I've been in debates where I'm talking about evidence and I bring an apple with me. And, you know, I, I asked my audience, you know, do they agree that to know something is true? Not to believe it or wish or hope or have faith, but to know that they need evidence. How many believe that? Raise your hand. Yes, we need evidence to know something is true. And to know something is true with absolute certainty, would you agree that you need a very high standard of evidence? Raise your hand. Everybody raises their hand. And then I asked, do you know when I toss this apple in the air that it's going to fall back down and not float away? Hold it. Hold that thought, and then I toss the apple mirror, and of course it falls back down. So you all knew it was going to fall back down. You knew it with absolute certainty, but on the basis of what? Randomized trials, meta-analyses, some particular research method? No. The absolute consistency of observation across your lifespan and the lifespan of everybody else you've ever heard of and everybody you've never heard of too. So sometimes we know what we know just because it always happens that way. And this, by the way, you know, is, is a very important topic. I, we were talking, Howard, before we started recording about another book I like very much, The Book of Why, by Judea Pearl, who's a founding father of artificial intelligence. Fascinating book. Um, but it turns out there's been this long-running war between statisticians and other scientists exploring causality. The statisticians tell us correlation does not equal causation. But actually, it can you know, mm -hmm. when, when there aren't confounding variables. So in other words, if the only thing acting on the apple is the toss and gravity, then throwing an apple up into the air where gravity is present, that is the cause of it falling back down. It really is. And so the fact that tossing an apple up results in it falling down, it's cause and effect. Right. And we don't need a randomized trial to prove it. That the, cor the perfect correlation of those two actions throughout all of human experience is causation. It's because the toss... What goes up must come down in a system with gravity. Now, if you do it in outer space, different story. But down here, um, it's causation. And so th this book explores the details that you'll enjoy it very much. Um, but that's really important. We know things without right. scientists telling us what's what. And, and that's a critical consideration. The job of science is to extend human perception so we can answer questions we weren't able to answer already but there are a lot of really important questions we were perfectly capable of answering already and never let a scientist tell you, oh, you don't know what you think you know because you haven't used my method to know it. You know, just turn on your sense meter and if it doesn't pass that filter, you know, just then it's time to say, hey, talk to the hand, we're done here. Respect science, science is extremely powerful. Um, and, and again, best method ever devised to answer those really hard questions we couldn't answer otherwise. But never let science tell you sense is invaluable. Never let science tell you you can't know what in fact you do know. Right. Um, most of what we know that's most important to being a successful human 
is based on pattern recognition and experience. Yeah, and, and consistency and nature and I mean, all of those things. Yeah, and, and we're really good at judging cause and effect too. I mean, you know, yeah. it, and, and you know, what you achieve with randomization is eliminating those third variables, right? So, you know, maybe there's a giant invisible hand that's pressing the apple down. And the, the invisible hand only comes in if you toss the apple up, right? So there could be some external factor. Right. You know, randomization would account for that. So if we'll do it here where there is an invisible hand and over here where there, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, by and large, we're able to perceive when there is a risk of those third variables and, and when there isn't. Now, when it's subtle, uh, frankly, bring on the randomized trials. And, and to be clear, I don't know if people know this about me or not, but you know, this is what I've done most of my career. I've run a research lab for the past 21 years. Uh, we run randomized trials. We publish those papers. I have deep respect for robust scientific methods. But again, science is the power of the freight train. Sense must lay the tracks. Sense is responsible for asking good questions and deciding when to use science and how to use it. And if you get that wrong, then the power of the freight train only gives you a train wreck. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, as we come to the end here, towards the end, David, tell tell the listeners, viewers, some of the things you're doing. I know you've got a lot of things going on, and where they can find out more about. That. Okay, yeah. So, so it, you know, first of all, again, the True Health Initiative. So, a lot of my time is devoted to supporting this nonprofit. One of the things we're working on. This is going to take some planning, but because of this imbroglio regarding processed meat and, and all of these bad ways of thinking about nutrition, we're thinking about a scientific colloquy uh, where we actually have not just public health and nutrition experts, but experts in artificial intelligence and engineering and neuroscience and psychology coming together to talk about how do humans know what is true? I think that would be fascinating. Right? Oh, and, be and, and inviting in a media audience so that they can reverberate the message. So I think what you're doing is so important, Howard. And I think we really do need a culture-wide reboot on how to think and how to understand and how we know what's true. And if we can fix that, wow, that would be, it would be important to politics and climate change and nutrition and public health and really everything that matters. So working on that. Uh, I, I actually stepped down from my position at the Prevention Research Center at, at Yale and Griffin Hospital after all these years to run my startup company, Diet ID. We've invented a whole new way to assess diet, to guide people to an optimal diet for their specific health needs. It's totally objective. It uses an objective measure of diet quality. We can ascertain details of your diet in under a minute. It's easy. It's fun. It's image-based. So go to dietid.com to check that out. We're not in the app store. We're a business-to-business -business platform. But if you like it, you know, tell your doctor, tell your health professional, because they can license it and, and make it available to you. And, and if you want it in the app store, if enough people tell us that, we may do that too. But it, that's really cool. Our goal there is to make diet a vital sign. Um, I have another book coming out in March. I wrote a book with Mark Bittman, a uh, famous nutrition writer, expert cook, the author of How to Cook Everything. Great guy really smart, knows a lot about food systems and environmental impact. And what we do together, I think, is bring together science and sense and we kind of bounce off one another. We did two pieces in New York Magazine that mm -hmm. kind of went viral. Uh, we actually wound up being nominated for a, a, a James Beard Award in, in health journalism as a result of that, which was exciting. Uh, so we did a book uh, called How to Eat, and it's the same thing. It's just sort of this, this banter. We answer every question we could think of, science and sense, that comes out in March. I'm excited about that. And, 
And then uh, other than that, you know, trying to get outside, walk my dogs, ride my horse, work out regularly and uh, eat well. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that, that is, that is awesome. And um, what we really need to do, I think is if we can, somehow, and this is the challenge, of course, is to get what we've been talking about, how we understand things, contextualization, how we think, perception, all of that. If we can get people to understand that and modify their behavior appropriately, not only would that make them wiser, it would allow all the wonderful things like people like you are doing to be easily accepted and we can, we can change the health of the planet. But, uh, and, and yeah, and I really appreciate your work, Howard, because I feel like Sisyphus. You know, I feel like I'm fighting the same battle over and over and over again. It's incredibly frustrating. It, it's as if you know you you want to get us to the moon or Mars, and you never actually get to do the work of getting us there because you tell people, no, we really know where the moon is, and then that's refuted tomorrow, and then no, no, we really know where it is. No, 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 that's refuted, and we never go anywhere. Right. So we really need to correct the thinking about thinking and the thinking about understanding and the basis for knowing what's true so that we can then get it done. Because again, I just keep fighting the same battles for understanding over and over and over again. And the frustration's incredible because again, I, you know, over the course of my 30 year career in medicine and, and health, the number of people who developed cancer and diabetes and dementia and heart disease and died and they didn't have to. And, and, you know, as long as we keep propagating the pseudo confusion, there will be more victims. So, you know, to me, this is a tale with a cost measured in lives. And so it's maddening. It really is. And, and correcting how we think and understand and process information is crucial. Once we get that sorted out, assuming we ever do, then we can use what we know. And what we know, to, let's just be perfectly clear, what we know about diet and lifestyle, inarguably, is enough at least to eliminate 80% of all premature death, 80% of all chronic disease in the world around us and to help save the planet into the bargain. If that's not a value proposition, I don't know what is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been awesome as usual, David, talking with you. Thank you so much. Uh, lots to think about uh, and to hopefully get people to think about their thinking and understand what you're trying to say, what we're trying to say and change accordingly. So thank you so much for watching. Uh, and remember to think about your thinking. You might not always be wrong, but you're probably not 100% accurate. <laughs> Take care, guys. <laughs>